Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our host, Dr. Sarah Jang of Duke Health, speaks with Dr. Alexis Carter. She's a physician informaticist in pathology and laboratory medicine and a molecular pathologist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. We'll hear their conversation about pathology informatics and how artificial intelligence could change the role of pathologists from surgical pathology to molecular pathology. Dr. Jang is on Twitter at Sarah underscore Jang, and Dr. Carter is on Twitter at PathBiteChick. Now here's your host, Dr. Jang. Hello, and welcome to PathPod. Today we're doing our segment called Beyond the Scope, where we speak with pathologists about their pursuits and interests inside and outside of pathology. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Jang. You can find me on Twitter at S-A-R-A underscore J-I-A-N-G. We're very lucky to have Dr. Alexis Carter on the show today. Dr. Carter is a board-certified pathologist with subspecialty board certification in clinical informatics and molecular genetic pathology. She is a physician informaticist in pathology and laboratory medicine at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and a former president of the Association for Pathology Informatics. You can find Dr. Carter on Twitter at PathBiteChick, that's P-A-T-H-B-Y-T-E-C-H-I-C. Welcome, Dr. Carter. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you here. Well, just to start off the conversation, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? So I actually grew up here in Atlanta, and I left Atlanta to go to college and then to medical school and then to fellowship and then ended up returning back to Atlanta. My husband is also from Atlanta, so we're natives and our families are here. So just made sense to come back here after training. Excellent. And where did you do your training? So I went to college at the University of Georgia and then to medical school at Medical College of Georgia, which now has a bit of a different name. (laughs) And then I did my residency in Eastern North Carolina, which was really interesting uh, because we were there when Hurricane Floyd came through. It was a very interesting time in the lab. We were having to helicopter some of our laboratory staff into the laboratory. Oh my goodness. We had laboratory staff sleeping on the floor. It was fun. So then I went and did a two-year fellowship in molecular genetic pathology at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. The second year, that's a one-year fellowship at the time, they didn't have ACGME accredited clinical informatics fellowships. So I spent my second year basically in the molecular lab doing a huge amount of informatics work. And so it was sort of a combined molecular informatics fellowship, but not quite through ACGME. So I did that. And then after we finished that, my husband and I returned to Atlanta. Great. So did you always know you wanted to be in medicine growing up? No. <laughs> no. That was quick. <laughs> You know, when I was growing up, I read a lot of murder mystery novels. And me um, too. Yeah. And I thought I wanted to be a forensic scientist. Mm. When I was in college, I actually spent several summers with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation in their forensic lab, saw my first autopsies, forensic autopsies while I was there, decided that I wanted to be a forensic pathologist instead, and then decided to go to medical school. Interestingly enough, I also got a lot of experience in the DNA lab. DNA testing for forensics was still somewhat in its infancy at that time, but it really kind of gave me a love for doing molecular and getting involved in molecular techniques. I was running a lot of research in the lab. So ended up going to medical school after that and spent a month of my fourth year doing 
full-on forensic path, decided I did not want to be a forensic pathologist, ended up then just doing regular pathology and decided in residency to do clinical informatics and molecular path instead. Great, great. So what spurred that interest in molecular and informatics? So molecular started when I was working in the DNA lab. So that was the first thing, just sort of fascinated by all of that. Got involved in doing molecular for oncology when I was a resident and also got very much involved in informatics as a resident. I just kept seeing a lot of people do you know, humans trying to get computers to do things. At the time, computers really were not good at doing. That's changing nowadays with artificial intelligence, but, you know, trying to get computers to think for humans at the time really was not the best use of everyone's time. I also kept seeing people trying to get humans to do things that computers were really better at. (laughs) So, so highly repetitive tasks that required 100% accuracy. Humans are just not designed to do that. And so I spent a lot of time trying to automate those things that made sense to automate. I was very fortunate to be working with Dr. Paul Catru, who's now retired, who had been a longtime informaticist at East Carolina University and really was very patient with me and taught me a huge amount of stuff as a resident. And then also very fortunate to be working with Dr. Larry Dobbs, who did molecular pathology in residency and then encouraged me to apply for a molecular pathology fellowship with Dr. Jeffrey Kant at University of Pittsburgh Medical Medical Center. So, so that's kind of where all of that started. I love how you phrase that things that we're good at as humans and things that computers are good at. And, you know, there's like this, right, the, the, I think probably this is an outdated stereotype, but that fear that the computers are going to take away our jobs, right? And that, you know, artificial intelligence is coming for pathologists. I'm like, no, no, think of all these things that you hate doing that are tedious. Computers can do this. I am waiting for my mitosis counter. Right. I'm waiting for my (laughs) glomerulus counter. There's certain things that are, you know, computers can make our lives easier, maybe. Although I'm sure all of us, uh, you know, listening can understand. Sometimes it makes it harder if you're trying to get them to do something that, well, they don't want to do. Right. So, yeah. So computers, computers can really make life very easy, but you always have to remember that they're programmed by humans. And (laughs) if the human makes an error in how programming happens, and this is one of the biggest issues with artificial intelligence and machine learning nowadays is that if you're not thinking about, you know, subconscious bias that can be programmed in, or if you're using data sets that humans have generated with subconscious bias or or conscious bias directly involved in it, then, you know, computer systems really have the possibility of not only promulgating those existing biases, but exacerbating them, taking them and running with it. So it's important for people to understand that computers really can be very helpful. It's interesting that you said mitotic count because that's one of the main things that I would have wanted it to do (laughs) when I was signing out SurgePath a long time ago. Everyone Uh, wants it. Yeah, yeah. So those are great things. You will find people saying terrible things about pathology and that we're not going to have jobs. They say the same things Mm -hmm. about radiology. I don't think any of that is true. However, what I've heard someone say is radiologists are not going to be replaced by artificial intelligence, but radiologists who use artificial intelligence as part of their work will replace radiologists who don't. (laughs) And I think that that is probably a very 
true statement and likely is going to be the same for us as pathologists that those of us who use artificial intelligence wisely (laughs) will likely replace pathologists who don't. Just the amount of work that we're faced with, the number of regulations that we have to keep track of to make sure that we're running our laboratory safely, it's going to get to the point with financial pressures and everything else that we will need those algorithms to help us make sure that we're, we're doing everything that we need to do to support patient care. Right, right. In an ideal world, the algorithms are a tool to make us more efficient, right? I always give the example, so I'm a cytopathologist, I always give the example that we've been using, you know, computer assisted screening of our pap smears for years and years. And right, that's helped be part of our workflow to make us as cytopathologists, as a cytopathology division, more efficient in how we do things. So in an ideal world, that's the goal, right? There's so many analogies that you can use in pathology and the history of pathology, right? Actually, you in your other area of molecular, the news often is like, oh, well, you know, we'll just take a sample or take some blood and throw it in and do NGS on it. And we don't need pathologists anymore, right? But that doesn't work because you don't know what you're putting into the NGS black box. And if you don't know if that's diagnostic or not, it's it's not useful, right? So right. it's a tool like anything else. It, it definitely is. I mean, about eight years ago, six years, eight years ago, you know, IBM Watson Health, there were partnerships with some organizations between them and IBM Watson Health specifically for genomics. And what I heard was that IBM Watson basically had ingested all of PubMed and was using that to determine whether a variant was pathogenic or not. Mm. At about the same time, ironically, there were papers that came out saying that 80% of the data in PubMed was not reproducible. So, you know, computer algorithms, whether it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, or what you would call routine programming, it is all about garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, I was just going to say that was going to be the phrase that immediately popped to mind. Right. Garbage in, garbage out. So if you're not careful about the quality of the data that you're putting in, if you're not careful about, you know, even if you're putting in, you know, the statisticians, one of the things that they tell me that they love to do is cleaning up dirty data so that they can analyze it. (laughs) Uh, But you have to have algorithms and processes to do that. And if you don't do that, then you're going to end up with data that that isn't representative of what's actually going on in medicine, which isn't a service to patients. It actually can be harmful. So those programs actually ended and we haven't heard much about artificial intelligence since then. I do think it's going to be coming up again, and especially for genomics, as people are doing whole exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing, there's only so many variants that a human can look at. (laughs) And so trying to use artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithms to figure out which ones are important and which ones aren't are things that laboratories are already doing and making sure that those are safe and that we're not missing things and we don't have false negatives and false positives is going to be really important. Kind of along that point, one of the things that we have worked on here, and I know is a challenge I think that many of us face, are how to integrate the molecular information that we're getting increasingly from things like foundation medicine or in-house NGS reports into the EHR in a way that makes it accessible so that we can see, okay, that molecular data can be part of the patient chart, just like you know TSH values or things like that. What have you seen as solutions to that issue there's a lot of opinions out there about <laughs> I'm sure. how to incorporate 
genomic data into an EHR, there are a lot of challenges. So the challenges that people currently experience, and, and I know this just because I go in and review expensive testing that's going out of our organization, which at a pediatric facility is almost all, mm-hmm. all genetic genomic. Right. And so you know, physicians really struggle because a lot of times these reports are free text reports. Mm-hmm. They're they're in a place in the chart that is not always easy to see. We do as much as we can to make sure that physicians are notified about those results so that they can review them. But then some of the challenges that you can deal with are that the patient has had multiple tests. Some of them have been on blood or for inherited disease. Some of them have been on tumors. Some of them are on somatic growth disorders. And knowing where the tissue came from is very important to your interpretation of what that variant means. For example, a BRAF V600E means something very different if it is in melanoma versus a lung cancer versus a colon cancer versus a pediatric glioma, for example. So the challenges really are getting molecular data into an EHR in a way that's easy for people to see it, but also so that it is in its appropriate context not just clinical context, but where it came from. There's a whole slew of things that can occur in the laboratory that can modulate how you're interpreting this variant. And top of all of that, you have issues, inter-laboratory issues. So if you've sent a sample out to multiple labs, the scope of testing can be different between those different labs. They can have different depths of coverage. Some of them will subtract out germline from a tumor. Some of them will everything at once. And it can get very difficult for providers who are not laboratorians to sort all of that data out. So those are really a lot of challenges. And so the Association of Molecular Pathology has a working group that I'm chairing that we're trying to look at electronic health records and genomic data and ways that we can help solve this issue. Previous efforts have done outside of the laboratory, and we have some concerns that, you know, clinicians will want to go in. A lot of times they'll want to look something up online. They'll want to reinterpret it outside of the laboratory. And that may not necessarily be the safest or most accurate thing to do. So there's a lot of challenges with getting data into electronic health records. Another good example is a lot of laboratories will interpret a variant based on whether or not it's a known pathogenic variant that can cause disease or not. So at variant level, they'll call something pathogenic. But when you're talking about an autosomal recessive disease where you have to have both alleles involved, you could have a clinician who doesn't necessarily understand that seeing that the patient's really a carrier Mm -hmm. for a pathogenic variant and they'll see pathogenic and they could potentially interpret that as being the patient's affected by disease when they're not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are other challenges. There's a huge number of nuances to all of this to make sure that clinicians are able to interpret the data correctly. And then you have additional challenges on top of that with there's a number of papers out there showing that your average clinician, their genetic knowledge and education is very low compared to all of the other million things they have Mm -hmm. to do. And so we're writing reports geared towards people who understand genetics. Not everyone who reads them understands genetics. So you have that whole dichotomy as well that you have to deal with. 
Yeah. And I think that's such an important role that we as pathologists can play in terms of not only designing the reports, writing the reports, but also being the interpreters of that information. So I remember at one of our molecular tumor boards, it's kind of a multidisciplinary group. And one of the oncologists who does not, not do what I do, which is head and neck, was really, really excited. They had found an actionable mutation in a metastatic thyroid cancer. And as you might guess, it was BRAF V600E. And I was like, well, I could have told you they had that mutation because they have PTC. And they were like, oh, I was so excited. And it's like, oh, well, this is really just kind of what <laughs> we get in these tumors. And they're a little bit deflated, but it really is. We all come to the table with our different skill sets and knowledge bases and our own biases too, right? You have your blinders onto the things outside of your field. So I thought that was a great example of just the blinders that you can have, even though we're all, you know, smart, motivated experts in our own fields, we have these blind spots of things that are really, really obvious to others. And there's just so much information out there. And it's impossible for one individual to keep track of it all. So I'm glad to hear that um, you and AMP are taking on this challenge, because I know it's, it's something that we all kind of struggle with at our own institutions, all these free text reports scanned into the chart in different formats with different testing platforms. And the problem is increasing uh, rather than decreasing. Right. Right. Well, genomic testing is kind of has been running ahead of medicine <laughs> yeah. for quite some yep, time yep, now. Yep. And as another example, Maya recently did a comparison of whole exome testing versus whole genome testing because folks were asking, should we be doing whole genome instead of whole exome? And for the listeners, the difference between those two is that the whole exome is looking at all of the protein coding genes, just sequencing those regions, the protein coding areas, as well as the flanking, you know, intron, exron boundaries. And then whole genome testing is really looking at all of the DNA with the idea that if there's something in intergenic regions or deep intronic regions, promoters are in three prime untranslated regions that, you know, you would detect those as opposed to in an exome where you wouldn't. What's interesting, again, is that we we can get so much data from a person's genome, but we only know what a very small fraction of it actually mm -hmm. means. So when I did this comparison of looking at laboratories that were, were posting doing whole genome sequencing on patients compared to those that were doing whole exome sequencing, all of the whole genome sequencing variants that were being picked up and being cited as being clinically actionable were all in the protein coding areas of the gene because that's right. where we have the most data. <laughs> yeah. So as of right now, there's really no advantage to doing whole genome unless you're in a laboratory that's trying to catalog and record and then later examine all of that data, which is, is definitely important for the future of medicine. But from a cost perspective, when the whole genome is so much more expensive than, a, than an exome, you know, that's probably, you have to bear that in mind also, and especially during a pandemic when finances and healthcare organizations are tighter than they usually are. And the human resources too needed to build the systems to catalog and eventually look at that data, right? Because if you right. collect it and it goes nowhere, I mean, you still need a human to do something with it. Right. And we're all certainly stretched very thin these days. So yeah, yeah. I think about this all the time because I think on a very much more basic level, anytime you do a test it's a potential for you to make more work for yourself, right? So I always tell the residents, you know, anytime you do an immunostain even, right? Anytime you do any test, it generates more information, but is more information necessarily better? And I think the answer is not really, right? Think of all the incidental omas we pick up with imaging that probably would have not harmed patients at all. And now we're, I've got a lot of adrenals on my desk and a lot of thyroids on my desk 
with benign nodules because of it, right? So every action has potential consequences. So tell me a little bit about your experience with the Association of Pathology Informatics and leading that organization and what that was like. As a resident, the College of American Pathologists actually had a foundation award that they would give to residents to go attend the annual meeting for the Association of Pathology Informatics. And so the association really was part of the reason why I really got bitten by the informatics bug, so to speak, because I went to this meeting and I, I just kept going you know, after, <laughs> after that. You know, there were a couple of things that really surprised me the first time I went. And I sort of tell this to everyone, but I certainly hope it it doesn't offend anyone who's listening. At the time, which was a long time ago, Pittsburgh had sort of had this reputation of being a steel mill town (laughs) and um, being very gray and overcast and, you know, not very much fun. In addition to that, I was going to a meeting of pathologists who stereotypically are not known for their social skills, which we all, we, you and I know is not true. However, in addition to that, these were also people who were very much interested in computers and potentially falling into the computer geek stereotype. So I really came into Pittsburgh sort of thinking, I have no idea what I have just signed myself up for. Um, and on all three counts, I could not have been more surprised and more pleased. So Pittsburgh was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. I don't know who came up with this idea that Pittsburgh was this horrible place to go to. <laughs> it was absolutely gorgeous. It was in the middle of fall and it's it was just really wonderful. And when I went to this meeting, I could not have found people to be more engaging. And as it turns out, there's a very good reason for that. So informatics, Homer Warner, who's not a pathologist, but who is a physician and informaticist from history, basically said that informatics was 80% sociology. (laughs) So when you're an informaticist, and I learned this for sure, when I had my first job as a director of pathology informatics, you have to be very good with people and you have to be able to manage people. It is often managing people that is more of your job than the technical pieces. And so when you go to a meeting of pathologists who are all doing informatics and all basically have to be good at working with people, it was really a very, very engaging meeting. And they were very active. Mike Bisich, who is still at University of Pittsburgh, was just so social and engaging and trying to get as many residents as possible into the field of informatics. I think we had, I don't know, 20 or 30 residents who were there that year. So after that first experience, I just kept coming back for more. And then that just progressed into me being more and more involved in the organization. I was very cheeky about getting my foot put in the door. And and then that led to several committee chair positions and then later to being president of the organization. I was not the first female president. I was the second. Myra Wilkerson was the first. But it was really a fabulous opportunity and it was wonderful to be working with a lot of people who, you know, when you're with people in your own field, as you know, you can tell jokes and people understand and they laugh as opposed to when, you, <laughs> as opposed to when you're outside of those areas and nobody gets the it. The pathology <laughs> informatics jokes aren't, you know, really like slaying them at your cocktail parties. <laughs> not, not when you're at non-informatics <laughs> cocktail parties, not necessarily. So anyway, you know. <laughs> 
But great. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so great that we all have these stereotypes and I definitely agree. I feel like that stereotype of pathologists being non-social is, I mean, certainly the pathologists I hang out with are very social. Think of what we have to do. We have to communicate with all these, you know, colleagues from other disciplines, right. Who are famously crotchety themselves. Think of surgeons. And if we're not able to communicate effectively and manage their expectations and educate them and tell them, no, you can't have 50 bags of platelets. If we weren't effective at that, we wouldn't be good at our jobs at all. So I always think that stereotype is definitely very outdated. I want to pick up on something that you mentioned, and you said you were very cheeky about getting your foot stuck in the door. And I think that, you know, the elephant in the room, right, we're both women, you were the second woman president of API is that often women are punished for being, you know, kind of cheeky or standing up for themselves or speaking up. How has that played a role in your leadership over the years? Yes. And both of us are in the Southeast, which (laughs) sort of adds, adds to all of that. I sort of grew up seeing a lot of people not being willing to voice their opinions, especially women. And I don't know if it's genetics or just, you know, kind of, I just was not going to do that. I have always been willing to volunteer for things. That is always a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some people will love it. Some people won't. I've heard people talk about, well, they can't get their foot in the door in professional organizations. And my response to them has been, well, have you volunteered to work with any of the committees? We're all volunteers. <laughs> you know. I can tell you from experience, we're all looking for or people to help do the work that needs to be done. And it doesn't matter if you're a medical student, a resident, you know, a fellow, we'd be more than happy to have people come in and do things. And I I think I do understand being cautious and being a little bit afraid to stick your neck out. On the flip side, you know, I just sent very pestering emails about <laughs> they weren't pestering. They were very professional, like I'm willing to help you do XYZ or I think this would be important to the organization. I can help you do this. And that's a very different email than sending an email just complaining about how the organization's not fulfilling your needs, right? And eventually somebody will listen. And in my case, that happened to be Ron Weinstein, who was the president of API at the time, who's known collectively sort of the father of telepathology. And he made it known that he liked my spunk, I guess. (laughs) And so, (laughs) so he wanted me to be involved in the organization. And so that's what happened. And that's a good example of sponsorship, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody who knows who you are and who puts you forward for something, whereas you working on your own may not have been able to get through the door. I do my own thing where if I have residents email me, doesn't matter what their gender is, you know, I will always try to make sure that if they want to talk about what it's like to do this field, I'll be happy to give them my opinion. I try very hard to do that because not every residency program has a solid informatics space. And so it, it can sometimes be difficult for those residents to get exposed to informatics or to molecular for that matter to decide if that's something they want to do. That's so great. All of us have benefited so much from having those mentors or sponsors in our lives. And it's great that you're able to kind of pay it forward. And I know I try to do that. And I, my, my personal thing is trying to rope everyone into being a cytopathologist, but if they don't use cytopathology, that's okay too. But, you know, to your point of having that sponsor who, who is at the table, one, one thing that I've, I've seen actually a lot of these days is the mantle. So, you know, the panel that's all men. And I think that it's, 
probably in most cases, totally unintentional, right? Some organization has some lecture and it's stage of eight people and it's all dudes and they probably didn't mean to exclude women. But that's one situation I think where I think it was Francis Collins, the head of the NIH a couple of years said, I will not be participating on any mantles. And I felt like that was just such a great and powerful statement to say, hey, if you are as a man invited to be on a panel and you see that it is a mantle, you know, you have that ability as being someone who literally has a seat at that table to speak up and say, hey, why are there no women? Why are there no people of color? Right. And, right. you know, without those allies and people supporting us in those spaces, it's really hard to change that dynamic and create that awareness. How do you feel that has played out in informatics? Is that a dynamic that you've seen? You know, yes. Unfortunately, I've seen it in informatics. I didn't notice it so much when I was younger and earlier in my career. As I've gotten further along in my career, it has become much more obvious that there is a glass ceiling and that it's going to be very hard to get over it or get through it. So just for the listeners, in informatics and in clinical informatics, when you go through and you count everyone who is board certified in clinical informatics, only 20% of physicians who are board certified are women. Now we can get at gender data. It is very hard to get at racial and ethnic data for obvious reasons, right? These are not things that that people want to be judged on when they're applying for a job, obviously, nor should they be. So only 20% are women. If you look at the number of pathologists who are board certified in clinical informatics, that percentage goes down to 15. And this specialty where 58% of our incoming residents are women. So the majority of our incoming residents are women, where almost 40% of our practicing pathologists are women. So again, being cheeky, I have been to now multiple organizations, CAP, API. I've noticed that this is This is really not a situation that needs to continue. Women have a lot to contribute to to informatics. And I personally don't understand why that gender gap exists other than I have been in situations personally where I felt like I was not being listened to. I was being ignored. I'm very difficult to ignore. so, So to some extent, sometimes it can feel very intentional what's happening. And that is unfortunate because if I'm feeling that given my personality, I can't imagine what somebody who is less willing to sort of stretch their neck out is feeling. It is a difficult situation. The percent of women in informatics is kind of right up there with the percent of academic deans who are women, or I should say right down there. <laughs> right <laughs> down the perc- there. Yep. Right yep. down yep. there. The American Association of Medical Colleges, you know, does a status of women in medicine every several years. And so you can go and look at all of that data to kind of get all of these statistics about women. And in my mind, it's unfortunate. We need so many people in informatics nowadays. And if you contrast that with my experience being in the molecular pathology community, which is also incredibly technical, has a huge amount of computational stuff involved with it nowadays, it is a very different atmosphere. There's a huge number of women in molecular pathology. Some of that I think is is 
likely due to my former fellowship director, Dr. Jeffrey Kant, who was the original president of the Association of Molecular Pathology. He was a huge advocate for women, spent a lot of his time intentionally going out there and supporting women, you know, getting involved in the field, making them feel valued for the contributions that they were creating. And that really had a huge impact, I think, on the field in general. And so, it's very different. AMIA, the American Medical Informatics Association, who I, you know, I teach the clinical informatics board review course. And so I sort of have to give that disclaimer, but they have made very huge efforts into trying to put women forward in informatics because, you know, they have seen their numbers being skewed. Their current president is a woman who's also, you know, a doctoral level nurse. And they have women in AMIA group. Every year we have the Women in Informatics Networking event, otherwise known as WINE, <laughs> the WINE event. And there is WINE involved. Um, I love it. I love it. Yeah. So, so they've really done a lot to try to get women more involved in informatics and to make it attractive for them to be involved. You know, so it's really going to be an issue of sponsorship and mentorship and visibility for women. I agree with you. When Francis Collins came out and said that he would not participate in any manals, I was, I was just so grateful <laughs> because, yeah. again, when you and I get invited to something. It's <laughs> yeah. not a mantle by default, but I just saw another one from a professional society that shall remain unnamed. <laughs> All eight participants were men. Mm -hmm. And it was, and I was, you know, very disappointed to see that because what kind of message does that send to people? Exactly. And I think that despite what we've talked about, which is that there is a lower percentage of women in, in pathology informatics, for instance, there's no field in the world where there's no women experts or no people of color who are experts, right? And so I think that I truly do, I, I like to hope that those mantles are not intentional. But I think that just the lack of awareness to that being a potential issue is still problematic. And it is, again, one of those areas where our friends and allies who are men can help us out because they literally, like I said, have the seat at the table. I just want to create one straw man for us to kick down. And so what would you say to the people who are like, you know, the reason that women aren't in informatics is just girls are not good with computers. Can we just, can we just destroy this straw man, please? I, that is just a load of whatever. I, you know, I've had people say all kinds of things to me. I had one person actually say, well, don't you think it's genetic? The reason why we don't have more women in informatics. Was As a, a molecular geneticist. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, more than half of your DNA came from your mother. So just remember <laughs> that. So, so it is absolutely not true. Unfortunately, I think culturally, a lot of girls are taught from the ground up to be scared of math and science and computers and anything technical and to play with technical toys, you know, and I think that that is very unfortunate because, and, and I've run into this in residence, I'm like, well, if you're not sure how this barcode scanner would read this barcode, why don't you go point the bar, you know, the barcode scanner, the barcode <laughs> into a Word it. document and see what happens. And they were like, oh, <laughs> you know, so, so I think a lot of times it's about visibility, seeing other women doing what you're doing and not taking no for an answer. And right now, you know, being willing to say, even though you may think that girls should not be doing this, I don't think that that's true. And I'm going to kind of do what I want. Um, so, 
some of that attitude is a little bit necessary. But I also think having a support network is really important. You know, I was very fortunate to have some really, really nice people who were very generous with their time. Back when I first started, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, they were all men. But like, you know, Mike Feldman, I would call him when I got my first job as a director of pathology informatics. And he was at UPenn, spent time with me on the phone talking about how to get through certain situations. Because when you're in pathology informatics, you are dealing with every area of the lab. And not only that, you frequently find yourself dealing with hospital leadership when it comes to laboratory computer systems and getting emails from them about what are we going to do about X. And that can get you into some really interesting political situations if you're not careful or if you don't have adequate mentorship to try to help guide you through those things. And I've been fortunate to have those things, but not everybody does when they first start out. So I think having a support network is really important. So for our listeners who are maybe in training or thinking about pursuing informatics, what are your favorite parts of your job? So for me personally, my favorite parts are making things better, you know, right? Making things more efficient, kind of preventing people from doing the same workflow three times over when a computer system could do it once and be done. Making sure that we're doing things in a way that's still going to be compliant with regulations. That's always helpful. Or to be able to comply with regulations without it requiring so much work to do that. Those are the things that I really like putting together a system that is going to make life easier for people and safer for patients. That's the other the other piece that I really like doing. You do have to learn how to navigate sort of a bunch of different systems. You have to figure out what are the constraints that you're having to deal with. You have to know a bunch of project management. (laughs) But I think for me, it has definitely been a very worthwhile career. I have enjoyed doing what I do. It's interesting when I first started, people told me that I needed to find something else in pathology to do in order to make sure that I could bill for something because in informatics, you know, we have the disadvantage that we can't bill for anything. We're more of a cost center than than a revenue generator. On the flip side, we can find all kinds of ways to reduce cost for people Mm -hmm. and to make things more efficient. And so it's The irony has been that almost every job I have gotten has been because of my skills in informatics and not because I could do molecular path Mm -hmm. or sign out search path or what have you. Yeah. I feel like informatics is such a needed skill. And I I think that those skills take a long time to develop, right? Well, that's true, but you you can't have somebody step into being a cytopathologist. (laughs) And automatically be able to do all of those things, you know, so, and speaking as somebody who signed out Cytopath, I could definitely attest to that. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So let's shift gears a little bit. What do you like to do outside of pathology? Outside of pathology? So I have two bloodhounds. My husband and I have two bloodhounds and two kids. two-legged kids. I like, um, I like that you, the bloodhounds came up first though. You know, I feel like that's, that's good priorities. Well, it's sort of, it was because it's not because I value the bloodhounds more than my <laughs> children. I love my children dearly, but it's because, you know, one of our hobbies when we have the time, and it does take quite a bit of time, is we take the bloodhounds man trailing. So bloodhounds actually have the best sense of smell of all the dog breeds. It's 10,000 times 
estimated to be what a human sense of smell mm-hmm. is. And our oldest bloodhound actually has taken to man trailing. So basically, we send the kids off in the neighborhood mm-hmm. <laughs> and wait about 15 minutes. And then we have a scent article that we've gotten from them. And oh, we wow. give the scent article to our bloodhound and our oldest bloodhound particularly. And she just tears off. She's like, you have lost my family again. <laughs> I am going to go find them. I mean, from them. your dog's perspective, that makes me like, oh, these people, what kind of parents are they? They keep losing their kids like all the time. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I'm very proud to say last November, she actually got her first, her introductory man trailing degree. There's actually man trailing degrees that wow. the bloodhounds can get that have to do with how old the trail is. So this was an entry level one. This was an hour old trail and she had to track a stranger off of a scent article and she passed. So yeah. Um, Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Bloodhounds are really amazing. I mean, contrary to popular belief, you don't see them being used in police work a huge amount because they're not aggressive dogs at all. Mm -hmm. They're very good scent hounds, but they're not aggressive. And and so you can't use them for other things that you Mm -hmm. might use a police dog for, right? right? But if you're strictly looking for lost kids, lost Alzheimer's patients, you know, bloodhounds are really your best bet because they can track at night, you know, whereas humans can't can't do that very well, obviously, just because of, you know, not being able to see (laughs) at Mm -hmm. night. And it's amazing how those dogs work. I mean, we hardly had to train our oldest bloodhound and she just got it. She Mm -hmm. just got it very quickly, what she needed to do. So that's one thing (laughs) that we like to do outside, but it's a multi-person effort and it requires everybody being home and trying to do all of that. And there's, there's a whole lot more to it. So we do, we do like to do that, you know, and then the other stuff is much more boring. I, you know, I do play computer games occasionally, those massive multiplayer games. And Mm -hmm. then sometimes I write, I am the webmaster for Bloodhound Rescue. So for the Southeast Bloodhound Rescue. So that's a bit of a hobby. Sometimes I transport dogs when I have time from one place to the other. That's about it. Wow. So how did you get into bloodhounds? You know, it was when my husband and I first got married and we were going to residency, my husband was like, he wanted a bloodhound and a bug zapper and a beer on his rocking chair on the front <laughs> I'm like, really? <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's like a very, that sounds like a very relaxing life goal. You have your companion, you have something to get the mosquitoes off you and you have your nice adult beverage. That's, that's right. like, I mean, what else do you need? I love it. Right, right. So so we ended up getting our first set of bloodhounds, our first bloodhound. And then a year later, we got a second one. And it was definitely a sharp learning curve. Every dog breed has got its issues. But that was a very long time ago. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if it was because of, you know, the forensics kind of element to to the, the bloodhounds. But yeah, that's, that's fascinating. That's so cool. I did want to go. So you mentioned murder mysteries. Do you still read murder mysteries? So I do. I listen to murder mysteries more often on audiobooks. I'm a huge fan of kind of the old British, you know, murder, most British mm. murder mysteries. Yes. I, I, of course, read Sherlock Holmes. I think Agatha Christie still has been my favorite. Yes. She's my favorite too. Uh, yeah. Anytime I need to relax and have a beach read, I just pick a, an Agatha Christie. And there's so many of them that I've most likely forgotten, <laughs> even though I've read them all. <laughs> At right, some point, right. I'll be like, oh, yeah. Sometimes I'll be like, I think it was this person. But right. yes, they're, they're like a little bonbon. Yep. Yeah. Sort of funny story. When I was in high school, I was reading these. And so I had this book with me and the guy sitting next to me in my homeroom. 
I had stepped away from my chair for a bit and came back and everybody was laughing. I had no idea why. So I get to the end of my murder mystery, this Agatha Christie book, and find that the murderer's name had been whited out. No. <laughs> Every page <laughs> towards the end. <laughs> my friend, quote unquote, <laughs> had whited out the name of the murderer. <laughs> it was um it was it was very frustrating but charming at the same time. <laughs> That's like, that's such an adorable prank. I just feel like that's, that's very lovely. That's very lovely. I hope you were able to eventually figure out who it was by the context clues. (laughs) But I love that. I love that. So great. Well, do you think you could leave us with some last words of advice for our trainees who are interested in informatics or more resources or just life advice in general? I would just say, do what you love and don't take no for an answer. You know, if you want to talk to someone, just email them or call them and say you're interested in finding out about this career. Sometimes my email response rates are uh, a little bit slow, (laughs) (laughs) especially for something that's not a critical need, but I do try to get to emails eventually. I haven't always, but I, I do try to get to those emails eventually. But I'm not the only one. There's lots of people out there who are willing to do that. And and really, it's just about don't take no for an answer. Go look for things that you can do. Volunteer, talk to people about volunteering, let people know you're interested. Nobody's going to know if you don't tell them. So that's what I would tell people. I love it. Great advice. Great advice. Don't take no for an answer. Well, thank you so very much, Dr. Carter, for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I have learned so much and I feel very happy that there are folks like you in Informatics trying to make the world a more efficient and productive place for us. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much and thanks for inviting me. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to Path Pod wherever you download your podcasts. Path Pod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. Pod.